Well, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, we have just read from your word that your spirit, uh, your powerful spirit is present with us and that he takes the truth of your word, the truth of your gospel and uses it to make us holy. And so that's what we ask for right now, that uh, you would help us to dwell on your word, to hear it, and as we hear it, that your spirit would do the work that needs to be done in our hearts, that we would be changed, that you would enable us to increase and abound in love for each other and for everyone else as well through this. And we pray this, uh, the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. So according to the writer David Brooks, for many people, life consists in climbing up two different mountains. Perhaps you're familiar with this. This is his most recent book called The Second Mountain. He argues that um, at some point as we're growing up, maybe it is in our childhood, maybe it's as we're approaching college, we start having a sense of kind of a goal, some sort of, some sort of mountain to climb that, that involves Maybe we could call it the American dream, whether it's, it's accomplishment, whether it's some sort of success we have in our minds kind of given to us that we absorb maybe through our parents' dreams for us, or maybe it's through things that we absorb through the, the stories of the culture around us. We have this mountain to climb that, that David Brooks calls the first mountain, and, and he writes, the goals on that first mountain are the normal goals that our culture endorses, to be a success, to be well thought of to get invited into the right social circles and to experience personal happiness. It's all the normal stuff, nice home, nice family, nice vacations, good food, good friends, and so on. This is the first kind of goal, this first mountain that many of us kind of see ourselves being drawn towards. We want to accomplish this. But somewhere along the way, Brooks says, something happens. Perhaps we get to the top of the mountain, we're able to succeed, we accomplish what we want to, and suddenly it doesn't feel like success and accomplishment anymore, and we wonder what's next. Or maybe, actually, we find ourselves part of the way up, and then something happens where we realize we can't do it, we, we fail, we can't, we can't make it. Or, or maybe even something happens where the suffering goes so deep that suddenly what once seemed so valuable to us now just seems empty and meaningless. Sooner or later, Brooks says, pretty much everyone who has been pursuing that first climb, that first mountain, ends up actually finding that they have come to a valley. And it's at that point, he says, that some people, not everyone, but some people discover that there is a second mountain to climb. It's different from the first one. It, it, it's not as much about pursuing self, but transcending self. Getting there is not so much about conquest, but more about surrender. And what fuels and energizes the climb is not this quest for just immediate personal happiness, but something deeper, Brooks argues, something that he calls joy. And I actually think Brooks is onto something here. What he's saying is that that the way towards wisdom, the way to living well, involves leaving behind one story and taking hold of a better one. 
See, part of what it means, I think, to be human is that we are storytellers. I mean, dogs don't tell each other stories, but we do. And it's not just because we find stories entertaining. Stories is the way that we make sense of life. We have all of these events that happen to us, but stories is the way that somehow we have a sense of coherence, a sense of meanings to what our lives are about. For us to be able to know how to live, we, we need a sense of our beginning. That, that gives us a sense of who we are. We need a sense of our end, what we're pursuing, because that, that gives us hope and direction. And we need in some way to understand the middle of the story that we're in right now, what it is that we are overcoming so that we can have meaningful action as we are moving towards the goal. We all, to some degree, have a story. And for most of us, at least especially early in our life, that story in some ways we just absorb from the stories and the world around us. When I was in high school, and this is a lame example, but hopefully it helps, I think I was in an 80s teen rom-com in my mind. I mean, if you've seen an 80s romantic comedy one, you've seen one, you've seen that all. They all have the same stock characters. There's, you know, the pretty, intelligent girl. There's the jock. Of course, there's the jock, the one who, you know, by some standards is handsome, but, you know, is, is popular and, and vacuous and not very intelligent, but for some reason, the pretty girl thinks he's great. And then, of course, there is the outsider, unconventionally handsome, who, who just knows that as long as he just, I mean, he sees the girl for who she really is. He is the faithful friend that she really appreciates because he is so kind. And we know how the story always goes in these comedies, right? That there is some moment where the girl recognizes just how much of a jerk the jock is, and she realizes that who she really likes is, well, me. That, that, I mean, like, maybe some of you were like that, but my point in this is that was my story. I had a beginning. I was an outsider. I had an end goal. The girl would finally come to see me, and I had a midpoint to wait and to be faithful and maybe occasionally to do some sort of dramatically romantic step to bring things about. And the story was something I absorbed, right? It didn't even occur to me that all I was doing was taking these, these not very well-written stories and making it my own. But my point is that we all have something like that. Probably most of us don't have quite so melodramatic of a story, but we've all, to some degree, taken on a story as our own. And the default in our culture is one that is more about personal success. It's, it's more about effort and conquest and the self being able to get where we want to go, whether it's the family, whether it's the house, whether it's the successful job, that's the happily ever after that we are pursuing in our story. But the problem is it's not a very well-told story. The, the way that we see towards success doesn't always work, and even when we get there, that story suddenly feels unsatisfying. And the answer is not that we're supposed to just find a better way to try hard. It's not just that we're supposed to try for even more success. The only way to actually find something coherent and meaningful and ultimately joyful is to learn a better story that tells things better. David Brooks calls that second story the second mountain. The Bible calls that story that we need to take on for ourselves is the story of salvation. So we are now in 1 Thessalonians, we've been working there through, you know, through it for a number of weeks, and we come now in chapter 3 to Paul's 
prayer for the Thessalonians. In some ways, he's already been kind of praying. He's been thanking God throughout, but here it kind of comes to a culmination. And what I've realized is that one of the things that Paul does, and I suspect he's doing this quite consciously, is as he prays, he is restoring the people. He is helping them to understand the story that they are really a part of. Because as he prays, he sets before them what they're happily ever after is, this is where you're going. And he helps them to understand who they are and how they are getting there. And that's what we see here. We see not only in chapter 3, but you'll see that we also are taking a little bit from the second letter that Paul writes to the Thessalonians. And in these two, we see him helping them to understand no longer the story that they once had before he came, but the story that truly is now theirs. And, and you could summarize it in that second passage, and the hard part is going to be when I refer to verses, there's two different verses, 12 and verse 13, so I'll just say like the first or the second passage to clarify, but if you have your bulletins open, um, you'll see that it talks about how in verse 13 of the second passage, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved. That's, that's the story. It's the story of being saved. And that's, that's the story that he wants the Thessalonians to understand. It is the story of everyone who has come to believe in Christ. If you this morning have placed your faith in Jesus, what he is talking about in these prayers is he is helping you to understand your story. If, if this morning that isn't who you are, if right now you're still trying to think through what you believe... I would just invite you to kind of listen in and, and to hear and, and see if this is a story that you find compelling as well. I think it's incredibly important for us to understand our story. It is the way that we make sense of life. It is the way that we know how to make action rightly. And so I want us to consider together this story that Paul lays out for us so we can understand our stories better. I want to think through with you what the beginning of this story is what the middle of our story is, what's happening right now, and the goal of our story that we see here in these passages. So let's first begin with the beginning. And here's the thing about beginnings. Beginnings actually are quite important for the way that you think of yourself. So imagine, imagine thinking this. Imagine this being kind of your origin story. You know, from, from my youth, I've had to fight for everything. Nothing was handed to me. Everything that I have right now, it's because I earned it. That's, that's one beginning story, right? Or imagine your beginning story being different. Imagine it being from my youth, I was loved well by my parents. They have, they have invested their lives in me. I was part of a supportive community. And everything I am right now, I owe to the people who are before me. Now imagine trying on both of those stories. How, how do you think that would shape who you are and how you see the world? How we understand our beginnings can be the difference between pride and humility, between trust and fear. And of those two stories, the first one is the one that our culture generally champions. I mean, again and again when we read inspirational stories, it's the story of the self-made person. And I think it's partly because that's how we want to think of ourselves as someone who is the self-made person who triumphs over things. And David Brooks himself, who in this book is kind of in a process of coming to understand, recognizes that even a few years before he wrote this, he wrote a different book on character formation, and he says... I, I was misunderstanding. I was still thinking in those terms. 
So he writes, when I wrote The Road to Character five years ago, I was still enclosed in the prison of individualism. I believe that life is going best when we take individual agency, when we grab the wheel, steer our own ship. I still believed at that time that character is something you build mostly on your own. You identify your core sin, and then mustering all your willpower, you make yourself strong in your weakest places. And then he goes on to say, I realize that that doesn't work. And he realized it didn't work because since he wrote that book, he experienced failure in a number of different ways. And what he writes is, the real beginning of the second mountain, the real beginning needs to begin with something happening outside of you, something happening to you. And, and what we see in our passage is that very thing. When we talk about the story of our salvation, we need to understand how it begins. And it begins, if we see in our second passage, verse 13, God chose you. Brothers and sisters, I'm backing up, loved by the Lord, God chose you as first fruits. We might think of salvation beginning with our choice, but it actually begins with God's choice. And he, it, how did he choose, how did, how did we become saved? Verse 14, he called you to this story of salvation. He called you through the gospel. Here's, here's what Paul is saying. We oftentimes think the beginning of our story is the moment we first believe. Paul says, no, it goes way before that, before this world was even made. If you are a believer, God not only knows who you are and knows you by name, but before this world even began, he already loved you. And he already said, I want him. I want her. And at some point in your life, as you heard the gospel, God invited you in. And that invitation was not like a polite note with an RSVP at the very end. No, when we're thinking of this calling that he speaks about, think of how Jesus, when Lazarus is dead for a few days in the tomb, and Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And that invitation was so strong that it woke up the dead man and brought him out. That's what God does when he calls you. You are somehow hearing something from the gospel, whether it's you're hearing just how Jesus being the Son of God is the King that God promised, of how He has come to make the world right, and He has come to bring forgiveness to you. Somehow, something in that message, in a moment, God speaks to you and says, be mine. And there's something in us that wakes up. And that can happen in so many different ways. For, for some of you, when you came to believe, it was like someone flicked a light switch on and suddenly you saw. For others of us, it's more like in the morning where it starts out dark and it gets lighter and lighter and at some point you realize it's almost, and then the sun comes up and you realize you've been kind of growing to this understanding for quite a while and now it's clear. Some of us, as long as we can remember, when we were an infant, we heard, and in that moment, God calls us, and we can never remember a time where we haven't believed. But the, the point in this is, however our story might have taken place, God is the one who began it. Before you choose God, God has chosen you. Before you loved God, God loved you, and he called you and brought you to himself. That is the beginning of our story. And, and what he brought you to was a process, a journey. 
I remember a friend of mine, um, one time when he was just kind of telling his own story, talked about how one day at a church he got saved. And, and it was like, for me, it was funny. It's just like it was different language than I'm accustomed to. And the Bible actually sometimes will speak about that. There is a sense that we can say the moment that we experience God's call, that is when we are fully forgiven, loved by God. We have a perfect hope in the future. We are saved in that moment. And yet scripture oftentimes doesn't just say that you have been saved. It says that you are being saved as an ongoing process, a journey that you are on throughout life. And, and that's how our passage also speaks of it. When, in that second passage, when it talks about God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. That word sanctifying, it's another way of saying being made holy. That's kind of what it literally means. And, and what Paul says is when God called you, he, he brought you into a process where the Spirit is making you holy. That's, that's the story that we're a part of. We're part of a being made holy story. And I wonder if the moment I just said that, you kind of like switched off a little bit. Because in my experience, the word holy is not a word that we, that we resonate with. I remember when we were in Australia, we had this kind of older pastor, and every time he spoke the word, he spoke it holy. And it felt, that's how it feels to us. It's holy. It's distant. We don't feel connected. If we even know what it means, we only kind of know what it isn't. That, that holy means being without sin. Sometimes it also feels like being without fun. It's, it doesn't feel right to us, but that's actually not the way Scripture speaks of holiness. Holiness is a word for everything that makes God's character great. We think of how God's love is boundless, and, and never tires. He has a holy love. We think of God's integrity. There is no shadow of turning within him. There is no hint of hypocrisy. He is consistent all the way through. He has a holy integrity. We think of God's joy, how even as he can grieve, it does not diminish the glory of his overflowing joy. He has a holy joy. Holiness is a way of speaking of the beauty of God. And what we have here being told, and we see this again and again in Scripture, is that God desires to share this beauty, this holiness with us. That is indeed how we were made. Scripture says we were made as God's images. We were made to reflect the beauty of God. And when it says that he is in the process of making us holy, he is restoring us, making us human again, making us whole again, so that we can discover how we were meant to be people who have a holy love that reflects God's love, who have an integrity, who have a joy that reflects God's integrity and joy. That's the journey that we're on. And, and Paul tells us, here's how this process of being changed works, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. And many commentators will say it's talking about the same thing from two different angles. That is, the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit works actively in you, taking the truths about Jesus and kneading them into your soul and through that transforming you. Sometimes this will come in, in the form of, of feeling weighed down because you realize 
that you aren't who you're supposed to be, that you are failing in some way. But it always, if it's the work of the Spirit, leads from that to coming to understand in a real sense that God has forgiven you and coming to begin to see the beauty of the life that God calls you to. That also is what the Spirit does. And the Spirit also awakens us to this hope that we have of the future, the hope that we have of knowing God and seeing Him face to face. This is the sanctifying work of the Spirit. He takes these truths and He brings them deep. And the way that that change looks, we see especially in the first passage, verse 12, where it says, May the Lord make your love increase. So as the Spirit takes the truths of the gospel, what He does is He expands our capacity to love. We begin to actually have more energy to love. And not only does it say increase, but overflow for each other. Now, each other, it's talking clearly about fellow believers in the church that that as you learn the gospel and as you're being made holy, you just kind of spill over to each other. You start caring more deeply about each other. You, you are more connected to them. You think more about them when they're gone. You pray for them more regularly. You're overflowing in love for each other. And that's not even where it ends. Do you notice it says that overflowing in love for each other and for everyone else. That as you care deeply about the family of God, but, but you also, as you're hanging out and seeing your kids, hanging out with kids in the neighborhood, you really care about them as well. You, you care about your, your awkward coworker that no one seems to get along with. You care about the poor who seem displaced and don't have a place in community. You lo- love the world around. And notice how at one point it talks about how you are the first fruits. This, this language of first fruits here implies that even as God rescues you, that's just the beginning. That as you grow in love for the world around you, you will be speaking to them about Jesus and they will come to know Christ as well and it will continue on and on. But but what I want us to see especially here is that what is being described in this process of sanctification is a growth in love. That being made more holy, the way it's measured, the way we see it, is growing in love. And that what God is doing as he has called us to himself and as he is sanctifying us is he is calling on this lifelong journey where the gospel is making us more and more loving and we are learning to surrender self and give ourselves to others joyfully. That is the second mountain of salvation that we're being called to climb. And then we see Paul in his prayer outlining for us this peak, the the goal that we're climbing towards. In our first passage, there's actually a connection that because the sentence is so long, it gets lost in the English translation, where it says, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. There's a so that, so that he will strengthen your hearts, so that you will be blameless and holy, or literally blameless in holiness, in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. There is a process that 
He's praying that we would grow more and more in love with this end goal being mentioned at the very end, that when Jesus comes with all of his angels on the last day, and in that moment it is absolutely clear that you are standing before the presence of God himself and that he sees you, that you would be found blameless in holiness. That word blameless, I think, kind of can trip us up a little bit because I think we can think of the same, that word kind of as a synonym of, of sinless. And it's actually not quite what it means. So Zechariah, at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, is identified as blameless, even though we know he sometimes doubts the angel's teaching. He's not without sin, but there's integrity to him. Or, or similarly, Paul, in the previous chapter, chapter 2, talks about how you know I was blameless with you. And And Paul himself will regularly acknowledge he is still a sinful person. Blameless is not talking about without sin. It's more talking about without hypocrisy, a a, a genuineness, that if something, if everything were known about a person, that wouldn't fundamentally change the way that person is viewed. So in the 80s, there were, um, in my mind, kind of two towering figures of virtue on American TV that we were supposed to look up to. There was, of course, Mr. Rogers, and there was Bill Cosby in The Cosby Show. Now, of course, we've come to know more about both of them in the last however many decades, and and as we've come to know more about Bill Cosby, we are not seeing him as blameless. What we know about him completely turns our view of him upside down. But everything that comes out about Fred Rogers, you realize he is exactly who we thought he was. Sure, he would have issues sometimes with anger and that sort of thing, but he was, he was the real deal. And that's what this idea of blamelessness means, that there is a genuineness, that it's the real deal. And what, what Paul is praying, what he is saying is, here is the mountain we're climbing. Then on that last day as we stand before God, that that change would have been so complete that there would be a genuine integrity of love. There would be a beauty of self-giving that reflects the glory of God that is pleasing and delightful to God as we appear before him face to face. The same idea appears in in the other passage, verse 14, where it says, He called you to this, this story of salvation through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Honestly, if this weren't here, I think me trying to say it would feel almost blasphemous, that the goal that that God has for us, where he is taking us, is that we would, literally, it can also be translated, obtain, that whatever makes Jesus glorious, we would also have for ourselves. That we would shine with the glory of Jesus. I have a hard time understanding it, let alone trying to describe it. But one thing I do know here is that it's not just talking about individually. It's, it's you, plural. So I just want us to try to imagine what that will be like for us as a community, where one day the, the light of the Spirit has dissipated all of the dark clouds of distrust and confusion and self-absorption and feeling hurt and all of those things that stand in the way, and there is nothing left except delight in each other. 
and an affectionate attention to eat per each person, a, a trusting and a giving self to each other where there is this deep sense of communion and connectedness as we bathe in the knowledge that we are loved by God and that He is present with us. That's the peak. That is where God is taking us all along the way. When he called us and he began this new story, this new journey of making us holy, of growing us in love, he is destining us for this time of delight and beauty and joy that is beyond our comprehension. That's what we are seeing here in these prayers. We here see a beginning that God God is the one who loved you and called you before you reached out to him. We see this end of this glorious nature of Christ that we participate in, and we see this journey that God is taking us on, up this mountain of transformation where we are learning more and more to love as God has loved us. And one of the wonderful things about the way this story is, is it is left without a doubt because it's not just in our hands. It is God who is doing it at every step of the way. And yet, perhaps counterintuitively, the way that Paul sees this affecting us is not to just move us to a place of passivity and go, whew, if God's doing that, I'll just wait and watch. No, if you're reading these passages closely, you'll realize that the very awareness of what our story is, is meant to inspire us and move us forward. Yes, God is the one who brings us forward, and yet he invites us to participate. God is the one who will give our steps the energy, he will guide us up the path, and yet we are still called to climb. And so, just briefly, in our conclusion, I'd like us to consider two ways that this story is meant to move us forward. First of all, in these passages, we are, it, they call us to focus our attention. So, in, in our second passage, we've already noticed how verse 14 lays out God's plan. He called you through the gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, this is what it means for you. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you. And this follows from what he said. Remember, he said that you are going to be sanctified by the Spirit as he works through the Word. If that's how the Spirit works, if he takes the Word and drives it deep in your soul, then one of the best ways for us to participate in that work is to receive it, is to have our attention focused, to work on listening to the Word, allowing it to nourish our faith. And this, if you've been with us, is what we've been thinking about over the last few weeks. And this morning, I just want to add one simple point, and that is that this is going to be a daily, lifelong fight for us to corral our attention on God's Word. We are, I have been we've been told in the news, in, in, in an economy of attention. What, what Facebook, what Twitter, what Instagram, th their currency is our attention, our links that we click. It's fighting for us to pay attention. And so if we want to corral our attention to what will nourish our soul, it will demand us ordering our lives accordingly that we might hear the word because that's the story that we're a part of. It calls us to focus our attention. 
And secondly, we also see a call in here to act. So in that first prayer, after Paul praised these things, praying that he would strengthen your heart so that you'd be blameless and holy in the presence, if we were to keep going to the very next verse, here's the next verse where Paul goes right after this prayer. He says, so then, brothers, we ask and we urge you in the Lord. So, so then, this is my implication. Therefore, we urge you in the Lord that just as you received from us how to walk and to please God, and just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. In other words, now that you see the story, in fact, you're already walking along the journey. You're already seeking to, to grow in holiness. You're seeking to love, and we say, keep going. Understand what the life of holiness that God calls you to and, and, and seek it out. Understand what the life of love looks like and seek to act that way. That's where our next chapter will go in chapter 4 as it tells us how to step along this road as we're following this path and, and what it looks like to pursue holiness and love. And so that's what we'll be looking at in the coming weeks. But for right now, as we conclude, I would like to invite us simply to respond in prayer. Our, our natural tendency so often is to just rely on the stories we are told and wholeness and health only comes as we take hold of this new story of salvation that God designs for us. And so I'd like to invite us even now to respond, to ask God for help, wherever the Spirit is leading you to respond in prayer. And I will lead us in prayer in a couple of minutes' time. So let's pray, please.